Incoming transmission. The Klingon word of the day is dog. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beam me up. Resistance is futile. Live long and prosper. Welcome to the Computer Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. He doesn't write Star Trek parody songs. They are birthed from him. He can win a costume contest by disrobing. <laughs> he is the most interesting podcast guest. It's Ian Ramsey! Yeah! <laughs> How's it going, buddy? How you doing? Good. How you doing? It's good oh. seeing you again. Yeah. Good to see you too. Uh, people don't realize how accurate that intro actually is. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's, let's go back to the beginning. Um, let's start with you. Where does your Star Trek fandom begin? Were you single digits, high school, college? Did a, a relative, you know, bring you into the fold as it were? Um, when I say I'm a lifetime Star Trek fan, I'm not exaggerating. Um, from my perspective, I came into this world already loving Star Trek. Wow. And that is because my dad was a it is a big Star Trek fan. And so um, he had the original first five movies on VHS. And nice. being a toddler, um, he would probably like put on a movie and have me in his in his lap or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got to the age of being able to put VHS tapes in the VCR myself, I would just put in nothing but Star Trek movies. And so as early as I can remember, I could already quote a good chunk of all those movies verbatim. Uh, I have no memory of seeing the first five for the very first time. I just knew them. So Wow. That's, so that's awesome. Yep, that's where it all began. Uh, so yeah, my, my originally my fandom just focused solely on the movies. Like I was mm-hmm. just a movie guy with, viewing TOS and TNG here and there. And it wasn't until Voyager that uh, re- I got into a series that really locked me down. Wow. Uh, so yeah. Voyager was my first dedicated series. And long story short, from there, it just ballooned and grew and evolved to the point where I've seen every single officially produced Star Trek. Nice. Well, let me... So uh, for folks who maybe don't know, don't recognize your name right off the bat... You're known on YouTube specifically as Star Wrecked, correct? Correct. <laughs> you are uh, the uh, writer, producer, singer, um, costume designer. <laughs> In a way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of uh, Star Trek parody songs, um, all of which, you know, you basically, it's Weird Al style. Is that yep. is that concise enough? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you take a modern pop song and then you just shove it into the frame of Star Trek. And first of all, they are absolutely amazing. Um, I, 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 much. I became a fast fan. They, these mm-hmm. are awesome. 
Um, so, so, you know, with music being uh, so prevalent in your life, as well as Star Trek, which came first? I mean, well, you say Star Trek was there right out of the gate. Yeah. I hope your mom doesn't remi- uh, mind that I referred to her as a gate. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I but, should be offended know, for her. How dare you? Hey, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so when did when did music come into play? Do you do you recall a first experience of like, oh, this music thing might be for me as well? Um, in a way, uh, I, I I think it's safe to say roughly about the same time because uh, from again from my earliest memories when watching these Star Trek movies, mm-hmm. I'm singing along with all the themes and humming mm-hmm. along throughout the movie. And um, I, I guess it's I, I think it's safe to say that my love of music started from Star Trek as well, because just loving those themes and humming them over and over again. Um, and then I'll give credit to video games, too. So like playing Nintendo games and Sega games continue to just find songs that I like to hum and just um, listen to them as much as possible, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I, I, I would. I would credit Star Trek as being the seed uh, for my uh, musicality. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, was it, was it one particular instrument or just vocals or, you know, what was it? For? Uh, the, the, the orchestrated uh, soundtrack um, of course. And this was long before I even knew anything about instrumentation or instruments in general. Um wow. So when I when I eventually started playing trumpet in elementary school, middle school, um, and started to be involved in bands and getting a better understanding about the instruments that I'm hearing, um, mm. obviously gave me a much deeper appreciation uh, to all that. Especially when hearing these crazy James Horner French horn counter melodies <laughs> and playing French horn myself later on, I was like, "How are people doing this? This is insane!" Yeah. Yeah, and also the trumpet parts like his high as hell uh, trumpet themes like the con. It's it's impressive stuff. Very yeah. impressive stuff. Yeah, I um uh, as a comedian, I it's I, it's a wonder I can walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, comedians have a a unique relationship to musicians. There seems to be like a really big mutual respect there. The comedians being like, I can't do what you guys do, but we've seen uh, yeah yeah the the musicians going i can't do what you do so there's that uh there's that mutual respect but yeah looking at some of the different types of uh music that has been presented and presented over the last better part of 60 years of trek you know we've seen it go through a lot of different stages and here pretty much the shift with uh, beginning with jj abrams that that music took on a much more dramatic i mean it was always dramatic but this was more like suspenseful and i feel like it was more punchy if that if that makes sense um uh, like yeah yeah the jj the movies definitely um and also michael uh oh my god i'm gonna be so embarrassed if i mispronounce his name uh <laughs> just Giacchino? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that. Uh, so Michael Giacchino's just uh, style in general, but yeah, yeah. the um, the intensity, the intense musical uh, cues of Nero's ship, um, and any sort of the any any sort of battles like that intro piece. Yeah. Uh, when the Kelvin gets attacked, is incredible and amazing. So, um, I I honestly think uh, uh, Michael just continued what was already 
I mean, at, at no point did Star Trek ever have a bad soundtrack in the movies. Um, every true. single composer knocked it out of the park for their respective film. Yeah. Um, and music has always played a very key role in Star Trek for sure. Uh, because, and I think it was a interview with Cliff Eilman who did six mm. talking okay. about yeah, yeah. how, uh, he was very appreciative of Nicholas Meyer, uh, giving him that orchestral moment. There are so many movies, um, particularly if you have John Williams composing your, your movie, there's so many times where there's going to be a long establishing sh shot or tracking shot and the director, whoever just lets the John Williams do his thing. Yeah. And, um, Nick Meyer or Cliff Cliff Edelman noted specifically that he was glad that Nick Meyer gave him those opportunities to let his music carry a moment. Yeah. Uh, the most, um, Notable one that I can think of is when they are escaping from Ruropente and uh, the camera zooms away from them as they're approaching this massive ice cliff. Yeah. And you just see how alone and isolated and essentially dead um, that area is combined mm -hmm. with the very tragic music, almost like making you think, oh, they're not going to make this. So. Yeah. And, you know, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that scene. I, I'm going to go back to uh that first jj abrams movie uh in 2009 the ver the opening scene which we mm -hmm. mentioned but it was interesting that they the moments that they chose to drop the rest of the sound effects out and have a very dramatic battle and um the birth of kirk yes. happening with with zero sound effects with zero dialogue it's just music and letting that play out was such an interesting was such an interesting choice but i feel like whereas you would think sound effects and dialogue would help bring you into the story it feels like the lack of those things allows you to feel the moment more and yeah, get a, drawn into it more exactly it's definitely a tonal shift it's kind of yeah. it's the same way that um performances obviously uh but editing and camera placement camera movement and focus yes. uh basically manipulates the audience where to look and how to feel same thing with that moment exactly um you you overlay this heart-wrenching uh ballad piece while there's so much drama and action going on in the background but you don't want that to be the focus because they're manipulating the audience to feel a certain way so that even though there's still explosions happening left left and right yeah um the the audience is feeling um sad remorseful um apprehensive because they know kirk's gonna die they know or sorry um george kirk is gonna die right. they know that james t kirk is being born and and it's such a it's such a crazy emotional moment yeah across the board and yeah, yeah letting the music carry that was a brilliant idea yeah, it's, it's such an interesting thing because usually the destruction of a ship is the apex of the movie. This is the height of drama. And it's usually halfway, maybe two-thirds of the way through the narrative that something like that would happen. But this is your cold open, man. Like, we haven't even seen the title card yet. Mm -hmm. And they're showing us the destruction and the loss. The loss of a father, the loss of, of this wife you know, in losing her husband, um, you know, At the same one time she gained a child. So like that dichotomy yes. of how, how do you, how do you emotionally register something like that? Where yeah. what should be an event that is the happiest of your life 
is juxtaposed against the most the the most horrible thing that could happen to to a spouse (laughs) yeah yeah you're absolutely right one more thing about the sound and then i'm gonna i'm gonna take us in a little bit of a different direction uh you know talking about bringing in certain sounds and removing certain sounds and i've mentioned this a couple times before but i think you know talking with a musician about it i i think we may get a little bit we might expand uh the thought uh when the kelvin goes up against nero's ship and it takes that first volley of of um of hits and there's a big hole blown in the ship and then someone gets sucked out and the camera follows them and the sound cuts off completely Mm -hmm. that is such a brilliant move because i don't think anything like that has been done before in star trek it's sound design wise um but yeah thoughts about that you know uh uh you know coattailing off of what we just talked about of removing the sound and letting the music wash over you let's talk about removing all of the sound and letting the visual thing hit you what were your thoughts and feelings about that um well really quickly i did want to quickly say um one of my final thoughts before was that people can think what they will and feel what they will about the JJ movies and JJ or like, and how they're written and just whether or not that feels like Star Trek or not. I don't care about that as a movie, yeah. as a director, JJ Abrams is a genius. Yeah. He directed, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to drop an F bomb. He directed the <laughs> f- out of that movie. Yeah, the really O-9 did. movie. And um, I've had debates with people the a star trek star wars debate thing about uh before rise of skywalker mm-hmm. um which movie was better force awakens or 09 and i stand packed that 09 is a far superior movie than um force awakens and i think it and jj did a much better job directing 09 than he did star wars which is his franchise like that's what he grew up at um yeah loving. and i think it's because at least for Force Awakens, he was treating that movie kind of or that franchise with kid gloves. Whereas oh, Star Trek, nine? oh no, um, Star Wars. Yeah, Force yeah. Awakens. He, he was probably being a little cautious. I want to doubt that there's some oversight from Mrs. Kennedy. Um, yeah. Uh, but oh nine Trek, he just went loose. Yeah. And it shows like uh, a lot of the creative camera angles with the ships. Um, these creative moments that we're talking about now. So circling back to what. Um, what you mentioned. Yeah. It's just another amazing way to manipulate the audience on how to feel. And in this case, it's an intensity. And it's ironic that you build up the tension and the intensity of the scene by removing all the, um, all the sound. Yeah. All, well, yeah, everything, anything that usually triggers audiences to feel intensity, whether it's visual or audio or whatnot. Yeah. Um, and there's no, and uh, again, completely reversed of the birth scene. There's no music either. Yeah. There's no music until (laughs) um, the captain flies over to the Narada on on a shuttle. Yeah. 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 That's wild. Um, So let's speaking about music in Star Trek. I think most people are going to know where we're going next. We just finished covering um, not too long ago, Star Trek enterprise. Uh, And of course it has that, Famous, some would say infamous, <laughs> uh, opening title sequence with, of course, Faith of the Heart. Um, before we get into that, how cool 
was the moment you, me, all the Trekkers, including Dominic Keating and Connor Trenier in a bar in Los Angeles singing Faith of the Heart at the top of our lungs. How, 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 what were your thoughts about that? Cause it, I, every, when I think about it, I get the goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. That, that was amazing. That was, yeah. that was one of those moments where when it was happening and right afterwards, I'm, it's one, it makes you think, is this real? Did this just actually happen? Yeah. We just all belted faith of the heart with two enterprise actors. This, this is incredible. Um, yeah, that was, worth, that was amazing. worth it. Worth, worth Absolutely. the price of admission, worth the trip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Might've been one of the top three highlights of that entire weekend. And there were a lot of highlights. Yeah. Yeah, there were. Yeah, there absolutely were. Well, so let's get into it. So enterprise, which is the beginning of the, uh, the beginning of the chronology, it is the story that takes place in the earliest time frame with faith of the heart. And then for a long time, it was nothing until the original series. This was meant to take place uh, 200 years before no, like 80, like 80 years. Really? No, no, no. Like from TOS to or from Enterprise to TOS? Yeah. Oh, OK. I thought it was thought it was bigger. Yeah, than um, it, I think um, I, I bet so many people are yelling at their. Yeah, right <laughs> um, I know it was anywhere between 80 and, and 100. I think all the advertisements and whatnot just generalized and said 100 years before um, TOS. But I think more specifically, it's somewhere around the realm of 80. Um, an example of that is in the 09 movie when Scotty makes a reference to Admiral Archer still being alive during his academy. Yeah, or, okay. Yeah, during that time. Um, yeah, yeah. You're he lived to right. be like 150 or whatever. <laughs> But it was interesting to go from, you know, that early 2000s uh, version of that song, which uh, if you, <laughs> if you've heard the end credits of this podcast, you hear uh, my very first guest, Gary Horn, doing his riff, his version of how that song makes him feel in a few lines that are just epic. And it has been in our end credits for over 100 episodes now. <laughs> um But then, you know, for the longest time, it was from that to TOS. Well, now we've got New Trek in between there with Discovery and Strange New Worlds. Now, those, how do you feel about the progression of the music from Enterprise to Discovery to Strange New Worlds to TOS? I know that's that's a big, (laughs) that's a big question there, but like, I mean, let's break it down. Let's let's start with Enterprise to Discovery because visually they have very engaging opening uh, opening themes. Um, but the but the music is very specific as well. How do you feel about that transition from Enterprise to Discovery? All right, really quick, is this a discussion about the theme song or just music in general? How the shows used music. Uh, more more centered on the opening themes, but uh, because I know. Enterprise was kind of the end of Enterprise is the end of Legacy Trek or the TNG era, however you want to define it. Um, I'm speaking more about the opening themes here. Okay. Um, first off, about Enterprise is I'm me, just like everyone else, practically. Uh, when it, Enterprise first aired and I heard that song, I'm like, "What the f- is this? <laughs> Where's my instrumental 
theme that gets me all hyped and ready to go for the episode. Right. Um, so initially I was not a big fan. Jump 15, 20 years later when I'm doing okay, oh not that old. Let's say 10, 15 years later. Okay. <laughs> um, and I'm doing an enterprise rewatch, um, probably for the first time since it aired on Netflix and just started to reevaluate it. And A, as a song, it's a great song. Like remove the Star Trek element from it. It's a great song. Um mm-hmm. And my favorite piece of trivia is, is it was composed by Diane Warren, who like she's a legend in, in the music world because mm-hmm. she's been nominated for like 14, 15 Oscars and maybe one, two or three of them or something. Really? Like she's constantly getting nominated for best original song. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Um, <laughs> That's really impressive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the song itself was great. Um, now the visuals is where I've always been a proponent of the enterprise opening because that was the first time in star Trek where the visuals of the opening credits truly defined what the show was about. Mm, Something can be said about Voyager because of all the various locations. And it's just like doing its thing, encountering everything odd and impressive and whatnot on its journey, but a little thin, but Mm. enterprise a show about um, humanity pulling up their pants and, and their boot, bootstraps and going out for the very first time, um, beating the adversion of the Vulcans and whatever obstacles um, they faced. That's what the that's what the visuals represent mm-hmm. the the evolution of humanity's progress in travel, flight, technology. Right. Uh, every single episode can connect to that. Um, yeah. So yeah, bottom line, that's my, that's, that's what I've always felt. I've always liked the enterprise intro for the visuals for that reason is because it was very, it, it defines the show perfectly. Yeah. And then I think Jeff Russo's music for most of new Trek specifically here, discovery, I feel like it's a decent transition from, you know, a, a song with lyrics to a more orchestral presentation. And of course, uh, paired with the visuals of now we're seeing these blueprint designs of the ship and some of the equipment and the EVO suits and all of that stuff kind of coming together. I feel like feel like it was an actual like it was a really good transition in time from Enterprise to Discovery where we're seeing, OK, stuff is starting to come together. And then now from Discovery, which was the first of the new treks into uh strange new worlds which is the last of the new tracks so far um that music is such a great homage to the original series i feel but it adds in this this backbeat this rhythm uh and that just kind of gets your blood pumping like it, it gets you really excited um Let's talk about Jeff Russo's music, and then we'll move into the more uh, specifics about Discovery in this episode. Uh, How do you feel about Jeff Russo and his music with New Trek trying to capture that those themes while at the same time bringing the fresh perspective to it? Uh, What do you think of his music and and, uh, its presence in New Trek? Um, Starting with his themes, in general, they are... I don't want to say they're like subdued compared to other show themes, um, but they definitely have a tonality to them. It's mm-hmm. it's not a bombastic piece to get you excited. It's still they're still exciting, 
mm-hmm. but in a different way. Um, it is more a little bit more intrigue. Right. Um, it builds. I feel like it builds. Yeah, it definitely builds. Um, and just starting with discovery, I am glad that his overall discovery theme, the da, 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 yeah. carries into the show. Because mm-hmm. uh, yeah. again, as a music nerd, I love it when any sort of like theme from an opening or uh, like, let's say Bond, uh, the main title song is woven into the movie itself yeah love it love hearing all that theme used in various ways to invoke oh they're in trouble oh uh they saved the day and everyone's relaxed and everyone's happy um yeah here's Um, here's the my my wife is sorry to interrupt you my wife is currently working her way uh on a through a rewatch of abc's lost which of course was done by jj abrams and company um so now while I'm in here working every now and then I get the famous walking music. <laughs> it's like, Oh, they're traveling across the Island again. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, I, you know what? You're absolutely right. You know, cause I'm a big uh, TNG guy. In fact, we're, we're both wearing TNG themed uh, shirts tonight. Booyah. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, you know, but you're absolutely right. I never really kind of pieced that together. Like Legacy Trek had that more, I guess Deep Space Nine kind of started off slow, but then it was very, you know, it had the slow crescendo at the at the at the beginning to this, you know, this uh, this very majestic uh, here's the sh- yeah. here's the station, it's so big and powerful. Uh. Um, but like TNG, very grand. Yeah, very, yeah, yeah, absolutely. T- um, and TNG is like it is big orchestral music. Like after that initial to to boldly go, bam, and then it does not let up. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, looking back at like Discovery and Strange New Worlds, they they do they rise. They definitely rise. I think it's been interesting um, looking at shows like Picard, where each season the music is different. Because I feel like every season is a different story. Um, and we can get into the Picard stuff a little bit more because that's 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 a that's a horse of a different color. Um, but <laughs> let's go back to 2017. Uh, Star Trek Prime Universe has been off the air for over a decade, and they announced, hey, Star Trek's coming back with Star Trek Discovery. What were your initial thoughts as a lifelong trekker about discovery especially considering it gleaned so much of the aesthetics of jj abrams films what were your thoughts upon first viewing of discovery okay you ready for some uh divisive opinions oh always always hit me (laughs) um i'll just say flat out i am not one of those people who wants a 50 year old franchise to look exactly as it was 50 years ago right so the how the how the ships were designed the uniforms the sets the technology Mm -hmm. i don't care that it doesn't look like a night bright like all the screens look like (laughs) night brights from the 90s yeah (laughs) um or what wasn't or something like the the candy boards i I think someone who worked on a tos or maybe it was um okuda one of the okudas who talked about how those consoles were basically candy boards 
That's so funny. <laughs> that pieces you could just pick up and yum, yum, yum. yeah, yeah. Because you're, I, I don't think I've ever heard the heard of them referred to that way, but they absolutely do. Now that I think about it, <laughs> <laughs> things you can't see. Um. So yeah, I if so, let's stick with Enterprise. So they've they're they're mere darkly two parter. Of course, they just grabbed an original series ship and and recreate all the sets and the uniforms and it was it was great it was fantastic it was fun to see that aesthetic in a modern way it was fun to connect these two shows in that way mm-hmm. um and yeah i enjoyed that just as much as i enjoy seeing a reinvention or a revision of the 23rd century because yeah. again in 2017 and onward why would we want to try and exactly recreate cardboard walls of monochrome colors that's (laughs) that's just not what we do (laughs) right right and also let let the creatives behind the uh behind the show do their thing Mm -hmm. uh because there's countless examples of how the aesthetic and look of star trek has changed so many times over its history yeah that um i can i can imagine fans being like during the motion picture why do why do they have things on their heads? What is this? Those aren't Klingons. Why are why are the uniforms so drab? And why are they those colors? Where's the red? Where's the gold? Blah blah blah. And then followed by Wrath of Khan. Like, what are these? Like, that looks nothing like the original uniforms. It doesn't yeah. look like the motion picture uniforms. What is this? The design of the refit bridge. Like, where's all my shiny colors? Where's all the bright lights? Yep, not familiar. Um, <laughs> so like, it's constantly changing. with the times with who's involved um so that stuff does not bother me at all uh that the klingons look completely different what i liked most about those klingons is that they were once again freaking intimidating they look dangerous again something that you haven't felt since the original series movies because yeah honestly i hate to say it but tng turned klingons into a bunch of kittens well, DS9 definitely turned them into kittens. There were like cranky cats at first at TNG, but then they became <laughs> kittens in DS9. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Divisive opinions. Okay. Um, where was I going with this? <laughs> oh, so more more divisive opinions about Discovery. Um, so yeah, in general, how they how they designed the show and how they shot it and everything that was shown visually on screen, I didn't care. I loved it. It was fresh, it was new, and I was in for it. Um and I'll just drop this bomb now. Season one of Discovery is still my favorite. Okay. All right. <laughs> cool. Cool. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, there's, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. What's, um, what can you point to two or three things that like, because of this, this, and this, mm-hmm. um, starting off with pretty much because it was just new, it was a new take on Star Trek, um, and obviously, if you're going to bring Star Trek back to the small screen after so many years, a lot of people are thinking, OK, there's been a, lo- a long enough gap. Give us what we want slash are used to. Mm. Give us that traditional Strange New World-esque Star Trek. I think if Discovery was more Strange New Worlds, okay, uh, I think the, the backlash would have been lessened. But, but to me, um, having a serialized Star Trek was new, relatively. <laughs> For the oh yeah <laughs> few exceptions um having a darker more adult star trek was new uh-huh. and i was down for that um i loved the the powerhouse cast they put together oh yeah <laughs> so sonequa martin green coming from the walking dead and leading that show uh doug jones 
from all of his work was an incredible addition, but I lost my, it was, and it was cool enough when I, when I saw that Jason Isaacs was um, cast as the captain. Yeah. That was amazing. I loved him, loved yeah. all his work. And then it just blew my mind that Michelle Yeoh was then cast. Yeah. And um, I'm going to, I'm going to play my hipster card now, but I've been following Michelle Yeoh since the mid nineties. Um, nice. I was a, I was a, my dad got my brother and I into Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee. So we watched a lot of um, Chinese Kung Fu movies and Michelle Yeoh was introduced to me in Super Cop in 95. Oh and yeah. Then when she became a Bond girl in, in Tomorrow Never Dies in 97. I was like, oh, this is awesome. And I've watched a handful of other Michelle Yeoh movies and I loved her from a very young age. So when she joined Star Trek, I'm like, yes, yes, I love this. So yeah. no one was more uh, shocked and sad, saddened um than me when she died in the second episode right i'm like really <laughs> you're gonna cast michelle yo and you're only gonna use her for two freaking episodes two episodes uh but we all know what came afterwards so uh-huh <laughs> and it's kind of like hey remember how much you remember how much you loved michelle yo in season one well guess guess what it's gonna be different and you're somehow gonna love her even more <laughs> yeah because I don't think evil or uh, Michelle Yeoh's ever played evil and it, she was chewing it up. She looked like she was having a grand old time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, Cause I mean, yeah, it's, it's so weird to think that of, of the big key players in discovery that your main, you know, first, you know, number one on the call list, Sonequa Martin green is, you know, in terms of, longevity and things in careers like is actually lower on the totem pole because you had jason isaacs michelle mm -hmm. Yeoh, doug jones like all of these amazing actors as supporting like what a great supporting cast <laughs> it kind of makes it perfect though because yeah. um to circle back to james bond but like a, a lot of the times the producer james bond don't get big names because they don't want the audience to make that connection with who they are they yeah. just want someone believable in the role so i yeah. think it works uh it worked to their benefit to have a relatively unknown lead this uh this show because then we're more invested about the character than we are the the actor yeah i think you're absolutely right and i don't want anybody to get get it twisted i adore sneakle martin green but you know in light of the rest of her cast it's kind of like oh they've been at this for a while and have a shelf full of, <laughs> of accolades mm -hmm. and resumes miles long. Uh, but yeah, it, you're absolutely right. You know, when you cast somebody, I, Batman is a perfect example. When you cast Batman, it's you either find someone completely unknown or it's, hey, there's Ben Affleck as Batman. Like, <laughs> you know, there's it's George Clooney. <laughs> there's George Clooney as Batman. It's It has, you know, Michael Keaton was kind of in that sweet spot where he had done some stuff, but he was still kind of really early in his career and just hit at the right time. And now it's kind of hard to not see him as Batman, of course, knowing that he's coming back as Batman. And but, that his casting like flipped uh, who Michael Keaton was on his head because he was just strictly comedic yeah. going into Batman. And then as soon as you first saw him and his scowl and his voice and his presence, you're like, oh, all those expectations go out the window. Like, OK, I'm in. Yeah, exactly. And I think where we stopped where I, me personally, where I stopped balking at uh, 
unique casting choices was with Heath Ledger as Joker because yes. every everyone heard, hey, we're casting Heath Ledger as Joker. And everybody went, really? 10 Things I Hate About You is going to play Joker? Yep, that was me. And then I distinctly remember they released the first image of him in the makeup. And I was like, oh, that's the direction we're going. Yep. Got it. And after that, it was just kind of like, you know what? That's why they have casting directors. That's why they have people who are really, really good at this. <laughs> yeah. Around, yeah, around that time, the mid 2000s and probably before, but in from my perspective, around that time is when these casting choices um, started to turn around where like people weren't siloed into specific types of roles mm. uh, necessarily. Um, and another great example of that is Brian Cranston for Breaking Bad. Oh, like, here's yeah. another guy who's known for comedic acting, but also still not that well known. And then boom, he knocks it out of the park for Breaking Bad. So your, your expectations are blown away. Heath Ledger, um, for me, Daniel Craig is Bond. Sorry, gotta always yeah. say Bond. Um, I was I was a hater. James Blonde, no, get this James blonde, goofy blonde. looking guy out of my Bond, and he killed it. And Casino Royale is actually the best comparison to like going back to 09. And when when great movies or TV shows are able to just squish your expectations down flat from the get go, yeah. so you can just enjoy the ride from there on. Um, the cold opening to Casino Royale, I would equate to the cold opening of 09 because who wasn't a little scared going into the JJ movie being after seeing the previews? I mean, like, oh God, what what is what's gonna happen? What's gonna what happen to the, our Star Trek? Yeah, and what then that cold opening us? happens, and I'm like, let's do this. I'm in. Yep. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it when my preconceived notions or opinions are just demolished. I love being wrong in that regard. Well, you know, it's, it makes me think back to the, I think it's the director's commentary on the 09 Star Trek where they talk about that cold open and they were like, hey, look, it's Star Trek and we've nailed a lot of this stuff, but how do we get, and the verbiage they use is how do we get our wives? How do we get the girlfriends? How do we get <laughs> the people who are being dragged to this movie? <laughs> how do we get them on board? And there, the consensus was, you know, with this, with this cold open, if you're not on board after this cold open, then Star Trek is not for you. <laughs> and to be honest, or just good movie making, or just good movie making. Yeah. You absolutely. feel everything during that scene. Oh gosh. Except yeah. maybe laughs. No laughs to be had really. But. Yeah. Not a lot of laughs to be had there. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, let's, let's get, let's, let's keep digging in on discovery so now, uh, so season one you've established is your favorite and there's a lot of reasons. It's very good, new, great cast. One final reason about that is that my two favorite episodes of Discovery are within yeah. season one. Uh, Magic that Make the Sanest man, man Go Mad is one of my favorites. The bottle and then episode. I forget the yes. name, but it's the first Mirror um, Universe episode directed by Jonathan Frakes. He killed that one. Yeah. Frakes did, um, yeah. <laughs> which is why I'm so happy that we're doing another Frakes one today. Yeah, uh, but that episode alone, even though I wasn't too thrilled about them going back to the Mirror Universe so soon, mm. that episode just again squashed my expectations, locked me in. I'm ready yeah. to go. Let's do this. Yeah, I feel like you know they were. It was so experimental. I feel like, and it was just kind of like you know what JJ's stuff worked. We've been off the air for a good long while. 
let's 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 break the mold a little bit and let's let's yeah. discover let's discover a new trick. So I yeah. kind of feel like that was kind of the thought process and thankfully it definitely was I I remember reading early interviews and they talked that this line was said many times they're blurring the lines between TV and the movies. Yep. For two reasons uh first for to try and get as broad of audience as possible they didn't mm -hmm. want people to be confused at how different the current movies they were watching were to this new tv show so right. yeah if, if you like the movies here here's something just as almost just as flashy and and shiny and and bombastic yeah um, so i like i like that i like yeah. that because yeah, yeah it, it, seems, it seems like more often than not they tried something and it worked, which is yeah. they they have a great batting average, we'll, we'll say. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you know, so we've established that season one is your favorite. Now, here we are. You know, we're just dipping our toe in this season two. This is the second episode where we're kind of we are introduced to this mystery, the Red Angel mystery here mm -hmm. and the idea that Spock has some ties to it. And we're not sure how we're not sure why. But this is kind of the first chapter of us investigating that mystery. What is it? Uh, what some initial thoughts about season two and getting into this particular episode? What were your thoughts about season two and this episode, New Eden? All right, more divisive opinions. Let's do this. Here we go. <laughs> I'm season here two. <laughs> season two in a nutshell, and then which obviously led into the major event of season three onward about where the show would go right was the moment where i'm like oh these producers have no backbone oh okay all right <laughs> again i was a fan of season one um i didn't care about any of the the crap that people were yelling about the aesthetic and not my star trek blah, 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 blah. i enjoyed the hell out of it mm -hmm. and so season two happens and it's and and i know there was a a showrunner switch or change mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you could see it. You could sense it. There, there, it still was like a little bit more. It was more PG-13 than season one's are. So okay. they That's toned fair. things down a little bit, um, I believe, due to fan outcry. Um, and so I'm like, OK, whatever. Fine. If you guys just I understand appeasing older fans because the whole reason franchises work is you don't completely scare away your entire fan base to get new ones. Right. Um, <laughs> but then. For, for your listeners who have not watched the, the second season, I'll be very vague. Uh, what happens at the end of the second season is where I'm like, yep, no backbone whatsoever. They caved for the fans. They absolutely caved because they didn't want to deal with any more correlations about canon, correlations uh, of technologies and designs. Like they just clearly didn't want to deal with that. They wanted yeah. to do their own thing, which I respect. But I have I was liking what they had established and I'm okay with filmmakers and 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 whoever and writers and whatnot sticking to their guns. Like this is the story I want to tell and go with it. Okay. And and yeah, so th that was my opinion because I did enjoy season one so much. So I'm like, okay, give me more of that in season two. They damped it down a bit. Um, it was definitely messy the whole season, writing-wise. Um, not defending that. But at the end of season two, especially when a certain someone dies, and I'm like, why are you guys still doing this? Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> and they did it. I'm like, break. Yeah. Because I knew it was permanent. It just felt permanent. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, 
Yeah, they had a lot of uh, a lot of direction changes. And, I, I, you know, I've said it before here on the show, the fact that anything gets greenlit, goes into production and actually sees the light of day is just shy of a miracle. So when you've got a property like this with a so many moving parts in and of itself, not to mention Paramount and CBS saying, hey, it's going it's going in this direction or there's no direction because <laughs> we will it's we're not going to spend our money on that um, yeah, and for for producers who said in the first season we're blurring the lines between the movie and the tv show so people don't get confused it's for general audience how confusing is it to start try to get into the show and be like wait where is it wait, yeah when is it why, yeah, why does when? everything look so different all of a sudden like it became a completely different show yeah yeah, and it's it, it's tough because and I've been in terms of creative endeavors here in in my personal life, uh, which I, I I'll I'll keep under my hat for the most part. But I've learned the value of identifying your true goal yes. and being able to say yes to something that might not necessarily be the thing that you would have chosen or that I would have chosen. But if it gets me the yes that I want, okay, I'll go that direction. If if it gets me a step closer to my end goal, sure. All right. We can that. Make is that very change. fair. I, I will always love it when and respect when writers, producers, filmmakers have a plan, particularly for TV shows. When they right. have a plan, they know where their show is going to go and potentially how it's going to end. And if they stick to it, it's usually pretty damn great. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we see that all the time in in comics, you know, uh, a couple of artists uh, got upset with the big companies uh, who were being the, these artists and writers and creatives were being told what to do by people who did not know how to make what they were making. And so they left. And that's where we got image comics. Um, you know, Todd McFarlane, Greg Capullo, uh you know, uh, a whole slew of top level talent just said, okay, well, we're just going to go off and do our own thing then. <laughs> uh, and it's one of those rare instances where not only did they do that, they were successful. So I think, but, and I guarantee you, there is a flip side of that coin. They oh, got, totally. the, they got that first stack of bills and went, Oh, did we, th did we bring, did we bring an accountant? <laughs> We got and, artists and we got writers. Do we have an accountant? <laughs> and here's my hypocritical moment. Um, that being said, I'm also okay when things do undergo changes for the better. I right. totally am willing to accept that as well. Um, it's That's why everything about entertainment, particularly Star Trek, is just so, so fluid. And you got to take it for what it is because... Ultimately, at the end of the day, I want to watch something that is entertaining, that is well-written, well-performed, well-constructed, where it fits into canon, whether I personally believe that direction was a good idea or not, doesn't matter. If the end product checks those boxes, I'm happy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of really fun things uh, that they inserted, because, and I, I went on record, uh, said it multiple times, in terms of the tone of discovery right off the bat, it starts dark. Mm -hmm. And then because they went to the mirror universe so early, which 
could could that have waited? Yeah, I guess. But you know what? What a big shock to the system. But then because they started so dark and they have to show this darker version, it got even darker. <laughs> so I think part of how they were able to sort of press pause, reset, was the inclusion of Anson Mount yes. taking over as Captain Pike, who brought this kind of fresh, hey, he quite literally has that discussion of, hey, I know you're concerned. I'm not Lorca. Let's get back to work. Um, and then, he, he goes and introduces, okay, just give me your names. I don't need ranks. Just tell me who you are. And like <laughs> identify, connects with each person there on the bridge. Uh, you know, so they did kind of reset there. And I think we see a lot of really interesting stuff develop, not only from Pike, but between Pike and Burnham in this episode in what a lot of people consider dicey territory of the area of religion. But before we get into that too much deeper, let's get to this week's recap. Brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, Rev J, Jerry Antimano, Cosmic Crit, Kitty B, and David Willett. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Captain, I'm picking up a transmission. We're under attack! Red alert. Ready photon torpedoes. Show me where it's coming from. Human life signs. Somebody want to tell me how they got here? I have no idea how or why they're here, but I highly doubt it's by accident. Sensors are detecting a massive spike of radiation. An extinction level event. We are responsible to every living being on that planet. Captain! He's dying. Burnham reviews Spock's last log entry with Pike, explaining that he'd drawn a map of the red bursts two months before they appeared. Burnham emphasizes the need to contact Spock, to which Pike explains that Spock was secretly committed to the psychiatric unit at Starbase 5 at his own request, but that Spock's connection to the signals might outweigh his desire for privacy in Pike's judgment. Burnham doesn't believe Spock would accept an olive branch from her. Pike understands complicated family dynamics as his father was a science teacher who taught comparative religion, leading to a confused household. Pike invites Burnham to tell him anything she thinks he needs to know. Thinking back to the angelic figure she saw on the asteroid, she considers it before simply thanking him for rescuing her. Whoa, that was close. <laughs> Saru calls Pike to the bridge, explaining that they've detected another signal. Tilly explains that she modulated the ship's deflector dish to act like sonar. As Discovery drops out of warp, Burnham pinpoints the signal in the beta quadrant, over 51,000 light years away, which would take 150 years to reach at maximum warp. So you're free Thursday then? Saru suggests using the spore drive, but Starfleet ordered it decommissioned. Discovering the source of the signals was of the utmost importance to the Federation and Pike believes Starfleet will be cool with it. Meanwhile, In engineering, Stamets tells Tilly that when he was trapped inside the mycelial network, he saw Culber and was afraid that he'd see him again. Despite this, he makes the jump successfully and storms out of the engine room. Discovery arrives at the coordinates. There's no sign of the signal. Burnham reports human life signs on the surface. Uh? Bryce reports a distress call coming from the surface. Pike orders red alert. Pinpointing the source, 
they find a small settlement with no apparent signs of struggle. Uh? Burnham confirms there's no other power or warp signatures other than their own. Saru examines the transmission and finds it has been set on a loop for 200 years before humans had developed warp drive. And on that note, we cue the music. reveals that the arrival of the humans on the planet coincides with Earth's World War III. Saru pinpoints the transmission to a church in one of the settlements. Pike believes they arrived through interstellar travel, yet Burnham indicates that not one of the settlements shows any signs of even using electricity. As their society is thus considered pre-warp, they're subject to the Prime Directive. Burnham questions whether Pike believes the people were brought there by divine intervention. He replies with a reinterpretation of Clark's third law, that any advanced extraterrestrial intelligence was indistinguishable from God. I guess. In order to find out more, Pike puts together an away team. Burnham suggests Awosakun as she grew up in a Luddite collective on Earth. In the shuttle bay, Tilly approaches the asteroid fragment. As she activates her laser core sampler, the computer detects a fluctuation and advises terminating the project. But Tilly refuses, as this is the only solution to finding a replacement interface for the spore drive. She secures a core sample, which releases an energy discharge that hurls Tilly across the shuttle bay, knocking her unconscious. Meanwhile, Pike, Burnham, and Awosakun beam to the surface and enter the church. The stained glass windows are two centuries old and show the symbols of many of Earth's religions. A man named Jacob enters, demanding to know why they're not working in the fields. Maintaining their cover, Pike identifies himself and the party by first names only and explains they're from the north. Jacob brings them to the All-Mother, Amisha, at a prayer gathering that night. Amisha tells the story of the first saved, the soldiers and civilians who hid in the church during World War III and were rescued by an angel surrounded by pillars of fire. The angel brought the survivors to the planet which they called Terralesium and solved the problem of their religious diversity by combining their faiths. Burnham asks for explanations for how they got there. Jacob mentions he has a camera from a soldier's helmet from the time of the first saved, but it's broken and no one can fix it. Pike asks Amisha if he and his companions could shelter in the church. She agrees. Meanwhile, Tilly awakens in sickbay to find a nervous ensign fretting about her condition, explaining she found her unconscious in the shuttle bay. As Tilly attempts to rise, Saru enters and rebukes Tilly for attempting to examine the asteroid by herself, which put the ship at risk and nearly got her killed. Saru warns that further reckless behavior may jeopardize Tilly's place in the command training program. Tilly explains that she was trying to get a sample to help Stamets in order to create the replacement interface for the spore drive. Saru is sympathetic as Tilly feels she has to take on greater risk to prove herself. On the bridge, Reese and Detmer conclude that between the radiation from the planet's atmosphere 
and the gravity from the planet's rings, in approximately 64 minutes, there will be an extinction-level event. Sucks! The radiation is interfering with transporters and comms with the landing party. Stamets enters and adds that the people on the planet below likely can't see the outer ring and won't know what's coming. Great! Saru deduces that perhaps this is what the signal was for. I guess. The landing party descend into the basement of the church to shut down the signal so that no one else will bother them. As Awosakun goes to disable the transmitter, Burnham confronts Pike, asking if he intends to leave the people behind. Pike replies that the Prime Directive applies, human or otherwise. He won't interfere with their development. Awosakun finds the transmitter has been rigged to continue transmitting. Jacob then arrives, explaining that he and his scientist ancestors believed Earth had survived and that there were other humans out there. They maintained the beacon in hopes of being found. Pike tries to explain to Jacob that he's mistaken. Yeah, right. When they try to leave, Jacob uses a stun grenade to knock them out, takes their stuff, and locks them in the basement. Wusakun gets the door open. Pike emphasizes that they are still bound by the Prime Directive and not to break cover for any reason. Meanwhile, in sickbay, Tilly tries to work on calculations to prevent the catastrophe. She's interrupted by the ensign she saw earlier, asking if she can help. Using her friend, whom she recognizes as May, as a sounding board, Tilly explains the issues. Suddenly, Tilly comes up with the idea of using the asteroid's own gravity to clear the debris, requiring Detmer to perform a donut maneuver in the center of the ring's debris field. While Detmer says she can't pilot inside the ring, Stamets volunteers to use the spore drive to get them in. How convenient! Back in New Eden, Jacob brings the crew's gear to Amisha as proof of the away team's true origin. Just then, Pike enters, explaining that Jacob attacked them in violation of their faith. Jacob pleads his case, to which Amisha chides him for following the ways of the old earth. Awosakun spots a child holding a phaser. Pike leaps in front of the weapon, taking the blast squarely in the chest. While Jacob calls on fellow scientist Burnham to use her tech to save him, she instead asks Amisha and the others to take them to the church to pray for another deliverance. Meanwhile, in orbit, Detmer delivers the donut, successfully diverts the debris, clearing the radiation enough to beam out the landing party. As a relieved Tilly enters the turbo lift to return to her quarters, she is congratulated by May, who calls her Stilly, just as the doors to the turbo lift close. Meanwhile, Burnham and Awosakun bring Pike inside the church, closing the doors behind them while Jacob tries to break the doors open. As he does, the landing party is transported away in a bright light, which Amisha attributes to the angel. In sickbay, Pollard tells Pike his ribs will feel like a xylophone in a Klingon marching band for a while. In her quarters, Tilly accesses the signature page of her old junior high yearbook, recognizing May as May Hearn, one of her classmates. When she tries to find her quarters, the computer doesn't have that name in the ship's manifest. When searching Federation records, the computer reports that Maya Hearn has been deceased for five years. 
Spike calls Burnham to his quarters and thanks her for adhering to the Prime Directive despite his injuries, to which she replies that she remembers what happened the last time she didn't follow her orders. Burnham reveals she saw the angel on the asteroid before Pike rescued her. She had dismissed it as a hallucination at first, attributing it to being injured. Pike is convinced it's not a coincidence, with two signals and two sightings of these angels. He feels the new info creates new context. Burnham then asks about Jacob, if he's entitled to some context. While Pike is sympathetic, he is still bound by the Prime Directive. Burnham counters that the helmet cam is more important than the Prime Directive, and that one would have to be sacrificed to uphold the other, a choice only the captain could make. All right! Jacob enters the basement of the church where he's met by Pike, now in uniform. Pike admits he lied to protect the other people from the truth, and that Jacob was right about the away team. They came to Terralesium on a starship. He also explains he's bound not to interfere with their society. Jacob disables the transmitter, accepting that he has an answer to a question he and his family had long asked, and it was enough for him to know he was right. Going one step further, Pike gives Jacob a power cell in exchange for the soldier's helmet camera and shakes his hand, hoping they will meet again. Jacob is convinced they will. Back on Discovery, Pike examines the helmet camera footage and stares in astonishment as he sees the angel in the doorway of the church, just as the video ends in static. Ooh, that's interesting. Oh my gosh, you guys, I am so excited to tell you about this. Hey folks, it's your old pal, Mr. Todd A. Davis here from the Computer Resume Podcast. Get ready to boldly go where, well, thousands have gone before. It's TrekFest 38, yay! June 23rd and 24th in Riverside, Iowa. Hey! Is this heaven? No. It's Iowa. Come enjoy all kinds of free activities for you and your whole family. This year's event will feature Chase Masterson from Deep Space Nine, some of the best bands in the area on the Riverside Casino and Golf Resort sponsored main stage, food, drinks, and yours truly will be doing some hosting and emceeing. I'll be upset if you don't come get a selfie with me. For more info about this year's Trek Fest, visit them on Facebook at Riverside Trek Fest or on the web at trekfest.org. That's T-R-E-K-F-E-S-T dot org. Riverside isn't just where the best begins, it's where Trek begins. Now, back to the show. So, like I said before we got into the recap, uh, there's a lot of interesting things that are presented here in terms of religion. Now, I know uh, religion can be a very, uh, gosh, you've you've given some uh, some uh, divisive opinions already. Uh, do you have? I mean, here on the show, uh, I the very first thing I put out was a statement saying like this is a non gatekeeper show so we don't exclude anybody for their thoughts and opinions their beliefs anything like that um i've even had some folks on the show who have uh, a religious uh not only a religious background but have served as religious leaders uh religious authors uh kevin c niece who's a i would consider a great friend of the show has that amazing book the gospel according to star trek and honestly 
it's a really good read no matter how no matter what side of the fence you sit on <laughs> uh it, it's great and doesn't come off preachy but here we get into some some territory about beliefs the power of beliefs and be- uh, a belief system that directly affects our actions do you have any thoughts opinions any I'll go as far as to say life experience with religion as it is kind of presented very loosely here in this episode? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a rural area of upstate New York. Um, so people, um, people going to church and, and being religious was very common. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, sometimes I felt like I was in the minority because should be told full blown atheist right here. Um, right. And I'm sure um, I'll build upon that later, but um, I wanted to start with um, my main uh, feeling about Star Trek and religion is that I always like it how Star Trek leaves everything open-ended. I may be an atheist and I don't personally believe in any of that. And I think I personally believe there's a scientific reason for uh, practically everything. Um, But when Star Trek deals with religion, and the first things that come to mind are two Voyager episodes, Emanations and Coda. Mm. Um, yeah, they they in throughout the episode, both episodes, they do kind of give a reason of why these things happen. Like in Emanations, they're not going in the afterlife. They're just transporting their body on an asteroid. Whoop-de-doo. Uh, but then there's this unexplained um, energy that is released from the bodies that go into the rings. And I... I like it that they keep it open where who knows what that is. Yeah. In Star Trek, your energy or your soul can get transported wherever, interdimensionally, whatnot. Who's to, who, who's to say that that energy isn't a form of their soul going into some form of interdimensional plane where they are living in heaven? Um, and then Coda, the thing about afterlife and... I feel like I, I should I should have uh, just ended with emanations. Coda, I don't remember as well, but I That's do okay. remember um, one main major theme about it is, mm-hmm. again, the afterlife and whether or not people believe in it. And even Janeway, if I recall correctly, was just point blank asked whether she believed in an afterli- afterlife. And she kind of just shrugged it off as saying, I don't know. I know scientifically what happens to people when they die. But as far as anything after, no one can know. Yeah. And even though I'm an atheist and I have my beliefs, I like that Star Trek doesn't pick either direction. Because, again, for gate- gatekeeping purposes, Star Trek is not about telling you what to believe. Right. Um, or, or, or how to live. Mm-hmm. There, Of course, there's the discussion about, well, what about its left-leaning progressive views? It all still boils down to star trek just wants to show and represent the best of humanity yeah and i I might ruffle some feathers with this comment but a lot of the progressive left-leaning views in star trek i personally think is better for humanity that's what gets people seeking peaceful um solutions to things it's what makes life better in general and uh for and make everyone happier and um so it's like anti-war it's anti-extreme capitalism um it's it's pro uh, universal education and universal uh medical care 
And those are things that are beneficial to humanity. So Star Trek's not going to be like, you should believe the left wing or be progressive, be liberal, blah, blah, blah. No, it's te- they're telling stories about how if you believe in humanity wanting to improve itself and wanting what's best for other people, yeah. this is how it's done. Or this is a way it could be done. Right. So, yeah, it has its biases, biasness, bias. Um and it has certain messages it does want to try and throw at the audiences, but it's not bashing you on the head most of the time. A lot of the the woke Trek people will completely disagree with me on this. Right. Um, <laughs> but it really isn't. Yeah. It's not bashing people over the head. It's showing humanity at what could be its best. And that includes letting people of color and women and non-binary folks or trans folks lead shows or be characters because that is, guess what? Beneficial for everybody. If people want to see that as a negative thing, they suck. But (laughs) it's letting people, letting people in on the party is not a bad thing. Right. Right. You know, one of the, one of the things, one of the big things that I gleaned from, from Kevin C. Neese's book was the, well, well, two things. One, uh, contrary to popular belief, Gene Roddenberry was not an atheist. He was a he was not against religion. He was he was against charlatans. Uh, mm-hmm. And he actually does a deep dive on the interviews with Gene and cites his sources about about all of that. That being said, um, the other big, big item, the big takeaway from Kevin's book, and then I, I promise I'll stop plugging Kevin's book here. But uh, the it's the idea of humanity, and you mentioned that just a second ago. Uh, being truly human and humane <laughs> to anyone and everyone, um, and most of the time, most religions would agree. <laughs> it's in their religious text. <laughs> Anybody, you know, a lot of a lot of these folks who want to say, hey, let's, you know, uh, so-and-so's, da, 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 da. Oh, oh, what about that verse of, uh, of uh, give a cup of water in my name, you know, and love each other as I have loved you. And, you know, like a lot of this, like, how did, did you miss that one? <laughs> did you miss that verse? Yeah. It, <laughs> miss that passage in the book? <laughs> that's the same way. Again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to move this conversation. This is an interesting episode that we're, going to be covering so yeah yeah uh, we'll, and, we'll, and we will get there promise <laughs> i'm not trying i'm not trying to uh lead this down any sort of political route but um me like a lot of other people are kind of mind boggled sometimes about how um like diehard conservatives yeah. and right-leaning people could be mm-hmm. star trek fans but that is a yeah. but what you're talking about and and conservative star trek fans it it it's all about how people perceive things, which messages they receive, which messages they ignore, whether consciously or unconsciously. Um, I'm convinced that a lot of conservative Star Trek fans, aside from being attracted to the pew, pew, pew space action part of it, probably just see a, a lot of surface level themes from Star Trek. So Again, here's a group of people, humans, us, just generally being good to each other and going on adventures. That's a very surface level take of Star Trek. But who can argue that that's a bad thing? 
And I think that no matter where you are on the political spectrum, you can enjoy that. Yeah. Um, so, and when it does dive deeper into um, more political uh, stories or themes or elements um, up until fairly recently, fully admit, it was far more shrouded in metaphor. Yeah. So again, far more opportunity for people to take things at a more surface level um, or take things at a, at a more surface level. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're seeing a time in addition to just being completely um, polarized, the Star Trek's use of metaphor has kind of diminished. It's not gone, mm-hmm. but it's diminished. And the messages that were always there from the beginning are now becoming more apparent to the people who might not agree with them. Mm. And yeah. so it's it's ruffling their feathers. Yeah. How do we, you know, getting into uh, some more specifics about the episode, how do we feel about the religion there on Terralesium, which is basically a, it is a combination of all of the above. It's, they've got texts from every land, every nation, every language, and it's all kind of combined into this one thing how, how, uh, my how do we thought feel about, about that my thought about that is if star trek is going to tackle religion head-on of course it does it that way that is the best <laughs> way to talk about religion yeah. and they're not saying that your branch of religion is less important or more important than this one by just forgetting all of it and mashing it all together like they like everything equates across the board um that obviously is not the case and how religion is practiced but Star Trek as a franchise, speaking towards religion, I think that's the best way to approach it. We are talking about just general religion. And um, here's an example of how you can practice what you want, but in a way that doesn't alienate anyone else. And it is a classic Star Trek way of here's the best way, hypothetically, to practice religion. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, there's some interesting things I alluded to it earlier about, you know, coming from Pike, because here we've got Pike, who's still pretty new on the scene. This is the second episode with him as Captain Proper. Uh, but here we here we have him sort of not only is he observing this uh, this group that's on Terralesium and what they've done with their religious beliefs and combining those religions into one faith. But we also have him presented with an opportunity. Now it's not a faith, but you kind of, as the captain, he has to make some decisions kind of based on faith faith, uh, regarding the prime directive Mm -hmm. and hope that it will work out. Um, how do we feel about him adhering to the prime directive in light of everything that's going on, not only on the planet, but up in the ship, you know, because they're, they're doing the same thing. They're, they are making decisions about the, about the life on this planet based on whether or not they can see that it's a ship and adhering to the prime directive where do you where do you think the prime directive falls into this discussion about religion and not only that but when it's presented through the leader which religious leaders you know uh can can be great can be horrible um any thoughts about this 
I'm glad you brought up the Prime Directive because in my notes watching rewatching this episode, I'm like, oh, Saru just absolutely broke the Prime Directive by saving that planet. But we can get into that later. Uh-huh. Um, I like the juxtaposition of Pike's beliefs, just and, and I don't even mean like religious beliefs, but beliefs of how to handle the situation and the Prime Directive versus mm-hmm. Burnham's. And and I I know that this episode when it first aired was heralded by a lot of people of saying, yes, oh, what a breath breath of fresh air. This is classic Star Trek. I agree because it is very thematic. And here we have um, Star Trek once again. They're not saying don't practice religion. They're not saying um, don't believe in science. They're saying here's how you can be scientific, but still be open to um, other things. Mm. And it's also saying if you practice uh, if you tr- practice religion, don't be so close-minded to not um, be able to accept information, especially yeah. scientifically proven information. So, and that is represented by the diversity, um, or sorry, the um, the conflict between Pike and Burnham. Burnham clearly is coming from Burnham's representing the audience members who are thinking. Oh yeah, they're they're so backwards. They're so um, restricted because they're just following dogma, and they're they're never going to evolve or grow. Um, we should help them. We, as in, like the Starfleet, should help them, like break them out of this. Yeah. And Pike is representing the group of people who, and and following the Prime Directive of no, just leave them be. We are not here to interfere. They can believe what they want and to have the two top characters of that episode going toe to toe in that regard, I really enjoyed because both of neither of them are wrong. In my opinion, neither of them are wrong, but also neither of them are right. Exactly. There's so much gray area (laughs) and um, in so many things. And this is the best way to, um, to show that all the gray area. Yeah. I think, you know, and they really do not only do they go head to head together but I think they really end up kind of showing the complementary, you know, side of it of you really can't be all in on one or the other, because mm-hmm. if you're completely solely faith based, you're going to ignore some pretty obvious things in terms of the world around you through science. Vice versa is true. Now it's, it's not that adhering to science eliminates faith, but I think it eliminates the possibility of saying, you know what? I don't know. It eliminates it eliminates the element of the unknown of, hey, we haven't figured that out yet and we yeah. can't attribute it to anything. So that's where we're at. Yeah. And it, it also circles back to, um, I don't even know if we were trying to make this correlation, but mis- mis- misinterpretation of things. So people who go strictly based off of faith, there is a very high chance of misinterpreting the Bible, the Quran, any religious text, what have you, that says love everyone, but they see love everyone, but this way, this certain way. Right. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. So um, and I think ultimately at the end of the episode, Burnham acknowledged the fact that, okay, I I should not be imposing my wholehearted belief in science on these people who clearly have a foundation, a a societal and cultural foundation of faith. But on the flip side, Pike, especially with that one gentleman who 
kept the uh, the distress signal going. Yeah, he realized that um, I can't completely. Uh, this is going to be a weaker argument, honestly. Um, <laughs> um, that you can't completely not try to get science out there because there yeah. will be people who do disagree with the religious leaders who break away. Um, and that's how progress is made. Yeah. People who get stuck on a, on a single, um, on a single belief and single piece of writing can get stuck. Mm -hmm. So allow science to bring actual evidence and actual support of other reasons. And that's how you grow. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Man, this is this has been a really great discussion. I'm so <laughs> glad that you've come on for this. Uh and yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things to unpack here. D- did we have uh did we miss anything that we uh you know in the episode? Any any big key moments that you want to discuss before we move on? Yes, how Saru broke the prime directive? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I please take it away. Let, let's, let's hear it. <laughs> okay, so the B story is of course up on the ship. Um, they realize that some um, stellar mass from the planet's rings is going to be bombarding the planet created, creating a nuclear winter. Yeah. Um, so this should sound familiar uh, planet wide disaster help or not. And I, I think when I originally watched this episode, I was under the impression that something that the um, spoil I'm not going to spoil anything. Something that the signal did resulted in the planet being put in danger, so they solved it. But no, especially on rewatch, I was reminded that the signal brought them there to fix this problem that had nothing to do with the signal and had nothing to do with Discovery's presence. It was just something that was going to happen, mm-hmm. and the Prime Directive states. They shouldn't have done anything. That was a natural, uh, naturally occurring disaster that was going to hit that planet. But yeah. um, because a a mysterious red signal brought them there, they presumed that it was for this reason to fix this issue. And so they did. But technically, that breaks the prime directive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's. I mean, you can argue it back and forth of like, well, they alluded that they shouldn't the no one on the surface would be able to see the ship, you know, because it's out past the rings. So there's there's that element of, hey, if they don't realize that we've altered it, have we broken the prime directive from a societal standpoint? Yes. But from a natural evolution standpoint. Right. Um, that event was supposed to happen and anything on that planet, human or otherwise, was going to die. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, you're right. It's it, yeah, it's a yeah, it's a tricky, it's a tricky situation for sure. And uh, you know, again, with them being humans and us trying to figure out, okay, how did you get here? What does this all mean? You know, and all of that stuff. That I was think- definitely the gray area because, like, yeah. They're not natural to it's like kind of like the discussion about the Baku, like they're not native to that planet. Yep. So I think that's a that's a that's a loophole that a lot of people in Starfleet would want to go through in order to save lives, which, of course, yeah. is fantastic. I'm not I'm not debating the merit of the prime director, by the way. I'm just being um, I'm just poking holes wherever I can. Um, 
that's fine. <laughs> so there's that, yeah, there's that loophole that people can take. Absolutely. But yeah. that doesn't negate the fact that this was a naturally occurring phenomenon that would have eliminated any life on that planet, whether they were supposed to be there or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And uh, to be honest, you know, looking at certain things that came up in the episode, stuff that's happening on the planet, the decisions that Saru is making about the future of the planet, the imminent future of the planet, uh, you know, and then looking at stuff going on behind the scenes, you know, with this new season of Trek and the direction that it's taking with this new storyline with Pike at the helm and us investigating the Red Angel, all of these things boils down to one question because someone is making the decisions. So we have to ask the question lovingly, of course, who do we blame? Akiva Goldsman wrote this story along with Sean Cochran. Now, Akiva Goldsman's last work in the series was Discovery Season 1, Episode 15, Will You Take My Hand, which we discussed with comedian Melly Kazel on Episode 101. And Sean Cochran is also uh, not, not a new name. Um, Sean's last work was Season 1, Episode 10, Despite Yourself. Uh, which we discussed with pop artist Sensei Ha back on episode 96. Uh, the teleplay was penned by Vaughn Wilmot, uh, whose first credit was Star Trek The Next Generation back in 1987, season 6, episode 26, Descent. He was a Bajoran security ensign, uncredited, of course, uh, but he did the teleplay along with Cochran. And this episode is directed by Jonathan Two Takes Frakes, uh, whose last work was also season one, episode 10, Despite Yourself. Now, after his initial run on Next Gen, Frakes would voice the character of David Xanatos for 33 episodes of Disney's Gargoyles. And as far as guest stars go, we've got Sheila McCarthy as Amisha, the All-Mother. Her first credit was season two, episode six of a show called Hanging In, uh, 1981, the episode The Princess and the Pea. Then she did two episodes of The Littlest Hobo in 1984. She did various characters in six episodes of Four on the Floor. That was in 1985. She made an appearance in Die Hard 2 back in 1990. She did multiple voices in 13 episodes of Rupert. That was in 91. Uh, she also did some voice work in 13 episodes of the Free Willy animated series. That was from 94 to 95. 36 episodes of the Busy World of Richard Scary. That was from 93 to 97. 47 episodes of Emily of New Moon uh, from 1998 to 2000. She made an appearance in the film The Day After Tomorrow in 2004. And did two episodes of Orphan Black. That was in 2015 and 2017. Uh, she played the character of Connie Hendricks. But this is her first appearance in the franchise. And then as Jacob, we have Andrew Moody uh, from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. So, hey, Canadians, here's one of your folks. <laughs> uh, his first acting credit is season 31 Episode 17. I actually had to double check that to make sure I was reading it correctly. But yes, season 31, episode 17 of the Magical World of Disney. And that episode was titled The Liberators, which was in 1987. Uh, his first film was called Snake Eater 2, The Drug Buster from 1989. That sounds awful. 
and I cannot wait to watch it. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, he also did uh, episode 16 in the first season of Due South. I've mentioned it a couple times that I adored the show Due South. That was in 1994. He made an appearance in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days in 2003 as Poker Pal Ronald. I uh, did three episodes of Hell on Wheels, uh, 2011, which of course is starring Anson Mount. Uh, he also made an appearance in Total Recall in 2012. That was the remake with Colin Farrell and uh, Kate Beckinsale and Jessica Biel. I actually really like that. A lot of people don't, but I'm a big, I'm a big Philip K. Dick fan. So I love the original and the remake. They're both great. Uh, but then Andrew Moody would do seven episodes of Orphan Black. So we've got an Orphan Black connection here. He played the character of Simon Frontenac. Frontenac. Um, that was in 2017. And this is his first appearance in the franchise. But uh, yeah, if you're familiar with where Discovery goes, I don't know that we're going to see him again in Discovery. Although he could potentially make an appearance in Strange New Worlds. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so I think I know where you stand on this, but I am going to ask the question that we ask every week. Ian Ramsey, is this episode of Star Trek Discovery essential viewing? If somebody is sitting down and watching Star Trek for the first time and they come to this episode, New Eden, is this a must-see episode or can they skip it? I think it's must-see. Really? I think it's essential. Um, for the reason that it really is a classic Star Trek story. Mm. I know that people love to throw out that term, um, from anything that isn't the original series onward, yeah. but it's true. Like that is the type of story that is quintessential Star Trek. It, it, it presents a debatable topic where not necessarily there's a right answer. And yeah. so it makes you think, it makes you talk, it makes you discuss. Um, and yeah. Well, that is masterful Star Trek right there. And then also the fact that if anyone's going through Discovery, if they skip this episode, they're going to be hella confused later on because of the nature of serial serialized storytelling. Yeah. And I've mentioned as much, gosh, pretty much every episode that we've talked about Discovery, that it is kind of hard to skip an episode of a truly water cooler show. And looking at this in terms of the overall narrative, it does feel like a self-contained adventure, which... You know, down the road with Pike, once we get to Strange New Worlds, that's the MO. That is that is the standard operating procedure for Strange New Worlds is getting back to those episodic adventures, but with connecting character arcs, mm -hmm. which which they've done well. But that that's a discussion for a different day. Um, in looking at this episode, yes, you're absolutely right in terms of the narrative. If you skip it, while it is self-contained, if you skip it, you can, you're going to be confused down the road, yeah. but looking at this, I feel like through the eyes of Burnham, who she is our protagonist, we're, we're seeing most of this story largely from her perspective. This is a big part of her continuing journey of discovery and not the ship. I'm talking about personal discovery. You know, we had season one was her, rediscovering her humanity and now i feel like season two maybe she's discovering 
something else. I haven't really quite put my finger on it yet. It's about, man, we're going full circle for many things. It's about releasing your preconceived notions. Yeah. I feel like for, for Burnham, because yeah. when, again, I, I think Burnham represents a good chunk, if not the majority of uh, the viewership that would be watching this, where she's pro- she's thinking similarly, Red Angel, powerful beings uh-huh. or, or, or mystical godlike beings. Nah, there's got to be an explanation for this. But yeah. um, starting from this episode and and moving forward, especially when they continue, sorry, spoiler alert for people who haven't watched, as they continue to, as she continues to investigate what happened with Spock and what he's experienced and what, um, yeah, what he's experienced this season, she opens up more and more as the season goes on. She is willing mm. to accept more ways of thinking and not be such a scientific robot. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I think leads perfectly into her character in season three, where due to everything that has happened up to that point, she just lets loose. She's like, she then becomes a loose cannon. <laughs> yeah, a bit. I thought yeah. she already wasn't in other regards, but... <laughs> Yeah, you're yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, uh, Ian, thank you so much again for carving out the time to come and nerd out with me a little bit about Star Trek. Thank you, thank you thank for you, having me. You. Happy to nerd out anytime. Awesome. Well, uh, do you have any parting thoughts uh, before we start to wrap it up about the episode, the series, the franchise, your experience on Computer Resume podcast? Any any parting thoughts before we go? Um, well, starting with the latter, this has been great been great to talk to you um finally getting some good solid one-on-one time because you were yeah. a busy bee during the shuttle pod show yeah i was um <laughs> and yeah this is fun i i genuinely love nerding out like my heart rate increases and i get the the tingles yes. when i just get to go all out nerdy love it so um, much fun <laughs> Uh, about this episode, I think it was really great. I think it was that first stepping stone into the new direction that Discovery was taking. Even though I lambasted it earlier about the producers not having backbones, um, it's not to say it's bad. It's yeah, it's trying to it was trying to find its feet not only as a show but within the franchise. That's the mm-hmm. thing about these new shows is yeah. they have to find their feet within the franchise as well. Yeah. Because yeah. even though I'm I'm not a canon purist you still gotta still slot yourself appropriately into a massive franchise like this you can't be completely disconnected otherwise just make your own thing yeah yeah you're absolutely right um nope sorry (laughs) nope no it's i didn't mean to cut you off go ahead uh and my final thought about the franchise in general um it is a fantastic time to be a star trek fan um because the the classics are still going strong. Like they are available uh, most of the time to stream at the majority of um, the the big popular streaming platforms, assuming that everyone somehow gets the ability to watch them. So it's always at your fingertips. And every single new Star Trek has its own merits. Some are better than others. That's a whole different discussion. Uh, but boy, does every single one, for the most part, inject so much new life into this franchise where um, even though the nineties were the golden age of Star Trek, I think the reason why enterprise failed, failed, don't, don't, don't tag me. 
in terms of viewership, <laughs> quote unquote, viewership, air quotes, let's put air quotes around it for sure. <laughs> um, I totally believe in franchise fatigue because uh, yeah. DS9 was not DS9 being the outliner, but in, in ways it was shot, shown, produced, and just overall look and aesthetic. It was almost identical to TNG Voyager, even though there's, I'm not going to deny there's evolution through all these, but Voyager was still kind of like the next cog in the machine that had very similar ways of being shot and the, and the stories and the look. And then same thing with enterprise. It still yeah. was different and it tried, it tried to do something different, but it still felt within that machine. Mm. And I completely understand why people would have gotten completely tired and over it by the time Enterprise rolled around. This new era of Star Trek Discovery is completely different from Picard, which yeah. is completely different from Lower Decks. Lower Decks is completely different from everything, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is completely different from Strange New Worlds. The only correlation you can make is Discovery. Obviously, it looks pretty darn similar. But and then Prodigy, again, completely different from everything else. So I love all these fresh perspectives and fresh takes on yeah. this very old franchise that should have new life injected into it. And I think that's where we are. And I'm, I'm loving the vast majority of it. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming out and uh, having some nerdy fun with me. You are o open invitation to come back anytime uh, and, and nerd so much, out man. with us here on the show. Well, folks, he might have the coolest job title ever. Next week, we will be joined by pop culture business analyst and one half of the Nerdpreneur podcast. Frank Bailey will be here to discuss Short Treks Season 2, Episode 3, Ask Not, which is available exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. And where can people find you and your hilarious, very well-produced uh, Star Trek parody music videos and and you as well <laughs> thank you very much um yeah uh, i go under the moniker star wrecked spelled s-t-a-r-r-e-k-t gotta stay hip with the kids um please cut it, that out <laughs> it, it, no 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 that's absolutely staying in because i absolutely love the name and every time i look at it, i'm like damn that's a good man that's a good title <laughs> man that's I mean, really would, really great <laughs> when that light bulb moment happens like oh <gasps> You can switch the letters around, but it's the same letters. Oh my God. Oh. Look at this. <laughs> um, so yeah, R-E-K-T, wrecked. Um, at, at, at YouTube, that is the prime focus. That's where the parody songs live. I have uh, various other types of videos that I've made and will continue to try and make, but ultimately it's leading the charge is the parody songs, which I love. I love doing them. They're so much fun. Um, and then yeah, Instagram, Twitter, Twitch that I've only used once, but I intend to use more. So is there anything upcoming that you can tease, maybe a theme or a style of music that you're currently working on that we can look forward to in the not too distant future? Maybe. Um, <laughs> I, I would, yes, I'm more than happy to bring an exclusive to computer resume, uh, podcast, um, more than happy to. I have been working on quite a while, actually, just because I have big visions for this one. Um, my next parody song is going to be a parody of Dua Lipa's physical Ooh. called Logical. Oh, <laughs> you shut up and take all my money. 
<laughs> and the reason why it's taking me so long is like I'm envisioning trying to do this like more involved pop dance video for it. Ooh. So yeah, it's 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 been a long time in the work and I hope to get it done soon. Okay. But, Nice. Well, folks, you heard it here first. It's on the way. Uh, we'll see if we can't get our hands on an exclusive clip when it's ready to go and we'll drop it here in the feed. Uh, so Ian, where uh, can people reach you directly if they want to give you, uh, you know, accolades and, and uh, compliments and uh, good vibes? Where can they find you? Um, as of now, my my DMs and Twitter and uh, and Instagram are wide open. Uh, but I also have a direct email address, starrectyt at gmail.com. So again, S-T-A-R-R-E-K-T-Y-T at gmail.com. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials. From all of us at the Computer Resume Podcast, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in 10 forward. on Patreon and like, rate, review, and share on all your favorite platforms. Feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computerresumepodcasts at gmail.com or at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Computer Resume Podcast was created and produced by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Our logo was designed by Will Martin and Justin Bishop. The opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop, and our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn, and the voice of Computer Resume Podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We probably got some phasers and shuttle pods, and we're going to find a brand new race. How's that for a slice of fried gold?